It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today, Michael Etherington. He's a relations consultant and storyteller. And he also happens to be Indigenous. And uh, that's from the Meshkigo Cree area. Um, so, Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Good to see you again, Dave. It's good to see you too. So, you know, when I when I say Meshkigo Cree, I know y- it's northern Ontario, but whereabouts is there? You know, one of the uh, one of the communities up there that specifically we're talking about. Yeah, well, where I'm originally from is uh, James Bay, Ontario. So, uh, my parents. So, uh, one thing that considers uh, with my family roots, I'm from Moosini and Moose Factory. So, my father's side's from Moosini, mm. and my mother's from uh, Moose Factory, but. Even going back in my mother's roots further back, uh, they came from Sesame as well in the Quebec. Mm. And so everyone uh, currently, I guess, today uh, settled in the community of Moose and Moose Factory. So even my father's side from Fort Albany, Atawapska. Mm. Uh, but the other thing I do want to also mention is uh, my mother remarried with my father, who's also from Moose mm. So I have uh, my family uh, roots there, are Etheringtons, Moors, and Chichus. So uh, Azumishkego Cree, it's... Um, I think uh, with my, my roots right now, it's, it keeps me grounded, especially when I live in doing the work in the urban area of Toronto and, and abroad. But I think for my, my background, especially for uh, the dialogues that I do in uh, relationship building, mm. is to be mindful of uh, where I come from, but also in, in terms of my accountability of what I share, is to, to know that I, that's, that's where I come from. Mm. It, it, now, it's interesting when you say that and you say about what you do now, relationship building. Mm-hmm. What first got you interested in, and and when did you think that this might be an area you want to focus on? <laughs> it's uh, uh, with my uh, especially my Chichu family, uh, mm. uh, very strong in music. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my uh, just to highlight the context is my my family carried on tradition, especially in fiddle playing. So I had a late grandfather, Sinclair Chichu, and he's well known. Um, I don't know if you know Graham Townsend. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah. He, he did a album there in the uh, around the eighties with my family, my uncle Vern. Uh, my mom, Thelma, and St. Clair. And so I was always conditioned with music and was always around me when I was growing up, especially from a young child. Mm. And so uh, we had the, um, I'm, I would consider myself and my family roots, especially for the generation, is I'm the transition between urban remote living. So my, my parents and my grandparents, they all were raised up and grew up in the bush and in the communities. And uh, when we started transitioning between Moose Knee and uh, North Bay, Ontario, I noticed when I transitioned to the urban space, I seen a lot of differentiation of how uh, Indigenous community members talked and, and spoke about their, their realities. And mm. and for me, I felt as though I was getting um, almost conflicting messages. And when I started transitioning into professional work in my, my mid-20s, I noticed that uh, it would, the, the language was... Uh, in, in interpretations of uh, if you talk about say for one example of a, an issue you would have a difference of opinion and for someone like myself just to, to give you an example when we said indigenous I noticed uh, they referred to the concept of urban indigenous mm. and I and I was it didn't really sit well with me but it's a very commonly accepted term especially mm-hmm. in uh, uh, contemporary uh, points of reference but when you go back home there's, there's a, when you talk about lateral violence or a certain reference, there's a commonly accepted term they call you city Indian. So they'll <laughs> say, oh, you're from the city boy or city Indian. I never really got that from family or anything, mm-hmm. but you may hear those points of reference. Yeah. 
But the interesting thing is from an urban remote uh, perspective, it's the same term, but one has a negative connotation. Mm. One has a positive point of reference. Mm. So when you're talking about relationship building, um, as I, as I uh, transitioned to the work, I never intended to do this work at all. Mm. It just kind of, uh, it just became uncomfortable for me to knowing there's such a divide. Mm. And, and for me in, and and how do I address that? But what can I, uh, what can I share within the conversation? So I think that's why I would really gain my, the, the role that I do within uh, trainings, engagements, especially in uh, public speakings as a keynote is uh, how do we uh, uh, rebuild community, especially for what's going on today mm. uh, with, with Sotin, mm-hmm. um, even other um, uh, certain challenges about divides, not even just amongst Indigenous, non-Indigenous people, but even with the Indigenous community as well. So right now it's, uh, I would say, I don't have answers, mm. and I think that's uh, that, that that should be the message carried forward. Is but we never hear from local community members. Right. It's it's usually kind of a heavily politically charged agenda yep. that we we very rarely get to to have uh, points of views for those that are actually yeah. really impacted by the issues. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and you bring up uh, with Soton, and um, you know that the situation, of course, has developed further now. Uh, they've moved in, or they're starting starting to take down the blockades. Uh, and and uh, and things, but uh, as you say, uh, we don't hear from the from community members. We and and we get lost in what the media is presenting to us. They're focused on the actual blockades, but we're not hearing really hearing about what the really real issues are that mm-hmm. led up to this. Yes, we know there is an involvement of uh, of uh, unceded territory and and the Wet'suwet'en commu- uh, territory and the pipeline, but uh, you know the issue started you know, uh, in terms of governance, right? Mm-hmm. It's an, it was partly a governance issue, mm-hmm. but of course, uh, and then that breaks down even further. If people want to, you know, really find out wh- what the situation is, uh, you go to, you go into, to find out that yes, it's governance. And then it's about who has, who has the control over those things, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, in other communities where there is both an electorate and a, a traditional council, uh, both of those, both of those, uh, 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 hold certain um, uh, power in terms of what they govern over, mm-hmm. and and that's what I don't think people are hearing about in terms of or getting the message about in terms of this. Mm-hmm. And um, you have something to add to that? Well, the, well, going back to the the voice of community, mm. uh, I think what's very evident in today is one: you have a very strong geographical divide. So when you think about the prioritization of well. What's the immediate need of, of, of the community? So, for example, if you're talking about uh, uh, those that are uh, wanting to have direct action, uh, civil disobedience, uh, especially in, if they're in, in their territory, but also for uh, the decision-making, the, the voice that you see today is that the, um, it's not considered, especially when you talk about the elected band councils, mm. um, there's, there's a vilification to, that's I, I find the narrative in the media implying as if they don't have the uh, the same type of voice. But the challenge within that, though, uh, from the broader sense, though, is there have been uh, cases submitted on the Supreme Court that were based on the hereditary chief, especially for the mm-hmm. uh, the ones that recognize title to land. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I think to take the conversation back is that um, I see this all um, uh, challenge with identity politics. And so when I started um, working towards trying to publicize the book, I thought when you take this conversation of uh, what's Oten, um, uh, 
I noticed, especially my social media, it's it it's blowing up in terms of individuals talk about allyship and solidarity. And someone asked me about it. They I said, "Well, I'm not from there. I've um, never spoken to community members there, but uh, we have strong opinions about that." So I thought, in the core aspect of an individual, especially in these conversations, um, when I say it about the geographical divide, think about Standing Rock. Mm. Uh, there was a hashtag, no uh, DAPL, uh, no Dakota Access Pipeline, and that faded off. Mm. Idle no more mm-hmm. around 2012. It was at the height of, uh, of, of these conversations. So I, the unfortunate reality for me is I know at the local regional level of these uh, uh, very contentious pieces of dialogue, it's impacting community members where, where they're from in the territory. And so I feel that before we take this conversation and run with it from both both sides, so uh, one, there's there's political stripes with this conversation, especially look at it from um, uh, um, Andrew Shear. Mm. He, he told mm. uh, he he referenced and said uh, you should check your privilege, yeah. and the the root of that basis is uh, what I find is um, when you look at some of the political stripes of those countries, it's catering to certain populations. Mm. If you look at the federal election. Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, the Liberals didn't have much success there, and they're pro-pipeline. Mm-hmm. But if you go to BC and Alberta right now, the the, the whole challenge that what I see right now when I talk about the identity politic from the Indigenous communities, when you're talking about ur- the ur- geographics, mm-hmm. but if you talk about even the, the broader sense of urban, remote, rural, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, what I see right now is that we have affinities to our, our, our local regional groups mm-hmm. but right now I'm seeing a very strong um, a reference of a cultural collapse that's occurring across the country especially mm-hmm. uh, this one this conversation of national identity because one of the things that really um, uh, sh- um, I was really challenged by is when I heard this I see signs it says reconciliation is dead mm. but what I thought to myself is that uh, when you think about the TRC uh, and especially the 94 calls to actions when it was published they were making a reference for one about acknowledgement of a dark chapter in Canadian history. But the challenge is, like I've always mentioned, is that reconciliation, uh, I find the way people speak of it, has they have a very narrow scope. Because I realized right now, uh, there was a, I saw an article in uh, the Toronto Star published talking about that. No, there was a youth saying about uh, rec- reconciliation being dead, but saying that government reconciliation may not uh carry forward because if you look at it there's uh even the prime minister makes reference to rule of law uh, but at the same time they're not acknowledging uh, the united nations declaration article mm-hmm. 10 of mm-hmm. forced removal yeah so that right there that's a that's complete contradiction right. yeah but if you look at it here about what i say about reconciliation i don't believe it's dead at all mm. it's just the focus is uh should be changed but well who does it resonate with most and for example um Queen's Park, many people walked in solidarity here, thousands of people. Mm-hmm. You didn't see that in the media. Mm-hmm. So right now, it's the, the information that we're getting access to with all these narratives, it's intended to polarize community. Sure. And, and it's intended right. to create friction. You don't yeah. see any aspect of, uh, of um, I would say, a basis of information that, uh, that's allowing you to think critical on the issues. It's, it's what, it, what they're doing is they're capturing... Uh, uh, voices and opinions that are that are emotionally charged that have very visceral responses. 
Yeah, it's the old uh, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing in the news, you know. Yes. Uh, and it's the same old kind of approach, as you, as you mentioned. And uh, it, it's also interesting, as you point out, uh, these issues go much deeper and broader than just having to do with the pipeline and having to do with uh, BC and, as you pointed out, Alberta, Saskatchewan and their support of, of getting the pipeline and, mm-hmm. and, and having this, this oil moved uh, to support uh, the economy, support jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then, of course, you, m- you mentioned Andrew Scheer, and of course, he's got his own political agenda in terms of bringing up what he mm-hmm. wants to, in terms of you know making the opposition, uh, you know, liberals look bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody has their own agenda, and they're po- they're politicizing this event mm-hmm. in yep. in the way that spins to their advantage. And unfortunately, uh, the indigenous uh, the indigenous uh, message uh, is is you know, again, uh, buried under all of this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you're right. So, so that's very true about all that. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, uh, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And uh, you can be listening on the Radio Player Canada app as well. My guest is Michael Etherington, and he is, I mentioned off the top of the show, he is both a relations consultant, as you may gather from what you've just heard a little bit, but if you're, he's also a storyteller. And uh, uh, He's indigenous uh, from uh, northern Ontario and uh, Moose Factory, as he mm-hmm, mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. And, and Michael, uh, you also mentioned, in, in uh, as you were talking earlier, about the book. You've got a new book that's going to be coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Um, well, the first aspect of, um, especially the book, mm-hmm. is um, they referenced, uh, with especially with the call to action of education, they made reference to this, uh, they call it Indigenous Cultural Competency. I, I remove the competency word now. Okay. Uh, I focus on awareness mm. and I see competency as part of the, the framework. Mm. Uh, reason being, I found with, um, I've worked with both public and corporate groups. So the primary calls to action I've been addressing is 57 and 92, which is uh, for public and corporate. Mm. And they have the same uh, reference about what should be uh, sh- um, educated on. And now when I've been working with the groups, especially in trains, as when you talk about it, maybe it's a one-time event or it could be a, um, a multi-bookings within the same organization. But there's a, there's a, there's a really big challenge within about how far does that uh, conversation go beyond a, a session. And mm. so what I've been noticing right now as, a, like a, as, a, as an optic is after the sessions are done, a lot of organizations interpret a progressive um, uh, direction as land acknowledgements but they mm-hmm. don't change any types of operations internally. Right. And they don't uh, have any aspects of milestones of uh, our indicators that build upon external relations as mm-hmm. the communities. Mm-hmm. So um, with the, the sessions I've been noticing though, there's a high impact on the humanistic approach of this conversation. So for example, we talked about politically charged conversations, uh, uh, racial tensions, but when I when I deliver these sessions, I try to be mindful that uh, this conversation has nothing to do with me. It's it's my story is important. Everyone's story is important. But how do you present information that uh, uh, deals with a complex of ideas to unravel in, in just a matter of time, but also to have it resonate with um, uh, attendees? And sure. I've been noticing um, in my in my work a lot of individuals that sit there. It, if you if you do have animosity towards indigenous peoples, it comes out. Mm. Like you, you'll see it through. I call it temperament. Mm. You can't evaluate uh, discriminatory views. You have to have dialogue. Sure. When you start exchanging, right. 
And I realized it had to do with Romeo Saganash's uh, comments in the House of Commons last year. Mm. When he's talking about the pipelines again. Mm-hmm. He asked the Prime Minister, he says, uh, sounds like the most important revelation, uh, uh, willfully violating any aspects of um, uh, consensus or recon- reconciliation, acts of reconciliation. He says, why don't the Prime Minister just tell these people the truth? He doesn't give a f- about their right. rights. And when that occurred, they called it uh, the House Speaker, told him to retract his statement, and he called it unparliamentary language. Mm. And when, he, when that occurred, I thought, that's the issue. They didn't focus on what he said. Right. It was the sensationalization yep. of the profanity. Because yep. mm-hmm. my title of my book, it, my first working title was Finding Your Voice, Finding Your Story in the Era of Truth and Reconciliation. And I thought it would be about well, how, do, how do we move forward as uh, community members? Because we don't have any, um, uh, I would think, a strong national identity towards reconciliation at all. But, how, but I realized that's too soft. Mm. So I changed the, the reference Romeo Saganash's uh, words. Is it's, do you give a f- discussing identity politics in the mm. era of truth and reconciliation. Mm. Because what I see uh, right now is becoming very evidently clear to me is that the the way these conversations are being dictated, it's it's getting further entrenched between uh, the, the political stripes. Mm. Uh, some are uh, taking the conversation very much. And now you have these groups identified as alt-right. Mm-hmm. And a, a very re, uh, um, a re- contemporary example in Canada, they had a movement, they called them the Proud Boys, and they were in Nova Scotia, and they had a it had to do with uh, commemorating event, and there's Indigenous community members there, and these two had a, a friction, a racial tension amongst these two parties, but they were being conditioned by the sourcing of that information, and so right now, um, the 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 focus that I try to attribute about the the title of the book and and seizing that is that when you talk about the conversation of identity, uh, there's a um, what, what gave me further insight, uh, there was a book by uh, Francis Fukuyama. It was called Identity, uh, the Demand for Respect and Poli- Politics of Resentment. And I see that as a very strong condition, especially in the narratives of reconciliation in Canada. Is one, parties are trying to demand recognition. And historically, presently, Indigenous community members are not getting that recognition. And people are clueless as to why you see, um, uh, for example, blockades today. Mm-hmm. If um, if you look at it uh, with where we're currently at, is how do you how do you mitigate that and, and find a common shared value as a, as a community? And right now we we are not uh, facilitating um, uh, areas because, for example, the prime minister referenced dialogue a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not a dialogue. It's uh, they had a clear agenda and, mm-hmm. a, and an outcome sure. that hopefully aligns with their um, exactly. their interpretation yep. of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, for example. I think right now is that when you take about this conversation, day-to-day realities, how do you uh, share that? And But also, I think it has to be from a principle-based approach, and that's what the conversation in my book, my chapters are actually principles in the Umishkego Cree language. So, for example, one of my chapters is called the Patjimun, means uh, sharing your story. Mm. But for a lot of people, their story is already defined by this politicized agenda. Um, what I see is... Uh, uh, the biggest contention right now with what I share in the trainings, you're talking about um, uh, some very prominent issues, but I find right now, especially my evaluation in, in urban uh, organizations or other, is that trauma is becoming an industry in this conversation. And mm-hmm. so those who directly experience the injustice, you never hear from them, their stories being exploited. But uh, for whatever uh, aspect, when we think about our own accountability and transparency, 
is that what I find the unfortunate reality, especially for those who attended residential schools, part of the 60s scoop, or uh, right now they published an article in January 2020 saying there's a there's a human rights crisis about overrepresentation in the justice system. Mm. Uh, but it, you see the, a lot of the same speaking points from those in uh, public uh, figures. Right. So right now, my I think the challenging aspect is that doesn't have to, we have the recognition for this, but it shouldn't be the defining reality for who we are as Indigenous peoples. And right now, I think with, with uh, the conversation that I want to have is that when you think about uh, reconciliation, and you think of these conversations, uh, what is our core value to this and what, and what do we bring forth? And I think it's even uh, about the cross-cultural engagement, it mm-hmm. should start with who am I? That's not, that's not clearly answered for a lot of community members I see today. It has to do with identity. When you say, who am I, uh, who are you referring to? Indigenous people, non-Indigenous Everyone. people? Everyone. The whole, like, uh, this is a, it's a national narrative. Right. And so, for example, if you ask someone with, uh, what, is it, what does it mean to be Canadian? Right. It's a very glossy <laughs> interpretation. Sure. Like, it's, uh, it's, so, it's so surface. Mm-hmm. It's not a value-based interpretation. Right. So, uh, right now, it's all about, for example, uh, uh, optics and for example a lot of the conversation I get is uh, uh, voyagers mm. um, maple syrup plaid clothing mm. that's, all, that's all subsurface sure. conversation there's no um, binding aspect about what, what's the principle and what I believe and you think about this conversation is that if you take away all these uh, uh, the, 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 the narratives that we see it should start what, what binds us is the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom mm. That's what aligns all of us as a country. Mm. Mm. But the, uh, when you think about uh, the challenges within the, the communities, that's why there's uh, these measures being taken place is because, for example, human rights are being currently violated. Right. And so when you think about the identity conversation about who am I, I noticed that that, that really is a fundamental challenge when I do sessions. Mm. I say, you want to know who Indigenous peoples are, you want to get the information, you want to know the history. But you, uh, if you ask yourself that, people, I ask them to write four things. Mm. But how would you rank your identity? It mm. could be from uh, uh, orientation. It could be from uh, race or it mm. could be from mm. whatever aspect of you, that you interpret it as. And they struggle with that. You My, know what's interesting when you say that, though, is uh, I feel that Indigenous people have a much stronger sense of their own identity. I would agree. The non-Indigenous Canadians. And and that's probably partly why we're seeing what's going on. Because Indigenous people are very clear and very uh, and know a lot more about their own history than non-Indigenous Canadians do. Mm-hmm. The, the, with the Wet'suwet'en uh, and, uh, and even what's happening and what's happening in Tayendinega with the, mm-hmm. the road blockade there, um, as uh, we heard some of the in- Indigenous people being arrested, um, you know, they were their comments were directed towards this being, you know, they were on, that the police were on, uh, on unceded territory and it mm-hmm. was Mohawk territory. And, and you, you don't, you know, what right do they have to come on to this territory and do mm-hmm. this much like what's happening in the West mm-hmm. that, that, and so there is that, you know, this, this unclear, you know, rights uh, are being violated but it's okay to violate indigenous rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, if it were the other way around, mm-hmm. uh, well, that's not okay. Well, I think the, uh, what really connects it out, I believe it's page 137 of the TRC summary. Mm. They were making reference to the, the term historical literacy. Mm. 
and I, I believe that should be brought forth within these conversations for uh, when you think about uh, non-Indigenous community members, uh, the nomenclature, especially for the uh, the big challenges, it's, it's not embedded in the public educational system. Mm-hmm. Like, so one of my visions, I would, uh, in these conversations, I, I wish it would transition into um, uh, the school settings. Sure. So people are competent and of they course, actually know yeah. what they're uh, yeah. referencing and bringing forth in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you think about, um, when you mentioned the, the identity of us as uh, orators and storytellers, and especially having still cultural references conversation, uh, the, the sad reality is when you talk about, for example, connection to the land, mm-hmm. uh, I go back home and I see my family, my grandparents, and my grandparents uh, um, speak Cree fluently. They've attended residential school. Um, and they've they've been through history. For example, my late great aunt, she was um, mm-hmm. Margaret Wabano, was actually one of the four that were in the House of Commons uh, during Harper's apology to Canada. Right. And she spoke from a fundamental values when she said Poonamuk about uh, forgiveness. Yes. And she's uh, even as old, as old as Treaty Number Nine. Mm-hmm. And so for someone like myself today, in the contemporary sense about uh, living urban, having roots remotely is that I don't see myself as, um, um, I would say from the connect after that we need, uh, a, a very strong need for us as Canadians is the bridging between urban, remote, rural uh, in this conversation. How do we bring community members together? But when I think about the core value, what I bring forth here in these conversations is that um, the, the cultural vibrancy of where I come from, it keeps me grounded and humble. Mm. And I think the, I think it's okay to say you don't have all the answers and that's the issue we have with this, uh, when we talk about the cultural context is that when I say community, uh, I do my reference to my, my roots in the Mishkegok territory. But when I mean about community, I mean everyone, Indigenous, mm-hmm. non-Indigenous. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's happening right now, if, if you think about it though, the nomenclature of non-Indigenous also creates friction. It makes you feel like you don't belong to this country. So right now is that how do we create the spaces to have uh, um address contentious issues to acknowledge it but move forward as a community and right now uh, those bridges are starting to um, fall apart at a very drastic pace and I think that's what's happening right now is that there's a cultural collapse happening in Canada and it's very visible people can see it beyond the indigenous narrative it's happening just on the conversation and it's all rooted in what I believe in identity politics. It's interesting uh, that that you do say that uh, because when you say that I think uh, I think that it's unfortunate that, that that is happening, and it's, a, it's as simple as having an open mind to look at things a little differently mm-hmm. that could resolve that and, and not get threatened by it, mm-hmm. that, that could help open the conversation. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, uh, you know, uh, for folks listening to our conversation here, uh, my guest is Michael Etherington. He's a relations consultant and storyteller, uh, and we've been. He's also, you know, quite well known in in certain areas. You've heard him talking about making uh, talks and giving presentations. Uh, he's a he's been on TED Talk uh, speaker. He's been uh, in in the Globe and Mail, uh, Toronto Star, CBC, uh, CTV Breakfast Television. Uh, the list goes on. He's he's involved in in, in many things, and uh, he's more than welcome uh, uh, to go to your uh, business. Uh, and make presentations uh, that you uh, you give these these talks about uh, building these relationships, mm-hmm. and uh, you've been doing that for f- quite some time. In fact, you 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 made a presentation here at Element FM for us as well, mm-hmm. and uh, you're going to be uh, working on some new stuff with us, I believe, here at the station as well. 
And so we look forward to, to that. And now, uh, before we go, uh, uh, Michael, I know um, you've got your new book, uh, mm-hmm. and that's entitled, what is it again? Pretty bold title, Do You Give a F***? Right. Discussing Identity Politics in the Era of Truth and uh, Reconciliation. Right. And when can that, uh, when will that be out, do you know? August or September. Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. And, and uh, we'll be looking forward uh, to seeing that as well. Now, but the other thing I, I want to mention, uh, coming mm-hmm. up in March, you do have this storytelling yes. event. So why don't we talk a little bit about that before you go? So uh, outside of all these conversations with the, the, the training, uh, when, uh, when I talk about community, I, I was always, uh, I grew up with storytelling. Mm. Uh, and that thread is kind of what got me to public speaking. Mm. And so this event in March 8th, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, I went to, a, I used to work with Mosaic Storytelling. And yes. I speak to yeah. all community members, right. children, adults. And I told them, I said, how come you don't have any uh, Indigenous-based events of Indigenous storytelling? And it kind of was the, re- the reaction was, they said, oh, we never thought of that. <laughs> so I said, we, we do land acknowledgements. Mm. I said, why don't you focus on that, whoever's uh, we're acknowledging. Mm. There's many stories to be shared there. And so I, I bring in uh, um, Nishnabe, Haudenosaunee, and Umishkegel. Mm. Um, we're going to be, um, three of us, or four of us are going to be sharing stories and it's and the thing is, uh, fifteen minutes a piece. Mm-hmm. It's but it's. Oh, I'm not defining how you share your story. Mm. Could be traditional if you right. talk about, uh, um, uh, for example, let's say from where I'm from, Chagabish or mm-hmm. creation stories, mm-hmm. or you can talk about maybe something more more recent. Mm-hmm. So it's it's open, and mm-hmm. I feel, find mm-hmm. that. Uh, so if you have a chair, yeah. and there's no set. It's just the the, the audience can attend. You'll hear a uh, uh, commuter and just. Uh, and share what you uh, w- want to share for community. So it's going to be open to all ages. Great. And that's on Sunday, March 8th at the Crows Theatre in Leslieville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, as you mentioned, part of the Mosaic Storytelling. Um, it, that's great. Do you know the other uh, presenters? Have you got those presenters lined uh, up at this point? Lance Logan Key. Okay, yeah. Um, Stephanie Pangwish. Okay. And then Elder Wabagoon, Patty Phipps okay. Walker. Cool. Yeah, so great. I got uh, all four of them to, uh, to attend. And I've worked with them all mm. but before, and I have friendships built with them. And uh, I like the way they share stories. And uh, Stephanie Pangwish, for example, she's a recognized comedian mm-hmm. uh, right now, and she's uh, very, very funny how she tells stories. And also, I uh, worked with Lance at the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers, and okay. actually, he was uh, one of the first friendships I had here in, in the right. city of Toronto. So, mm-hmm. him and I, when we talked, especially outside of work, it was just we have conversations, just mm. share stories amongst mm. each other. And I, I believe that's uh, uh, an aspect I always uh, valued growing up is that. Uh, and especially as Indigenous community members, uh, sharing stories and exchanging just on a one-to-one or with mm. families, it's right. that, that that's central to who we are. I, I went on a uh, on a, a plane with uh, with uh, Lance Logan uh, to the United States when we, there was a, a powwow at a, at a uh, on a on a. Uh, a military base, the first one ever. It was years okay. ago, and we flew down <laughs> together on one of those Hercules planes out of oh. Niagara Falls, New York. It was oh, pretty wow. cool, <laughs> uh, with some other people as well. But it was cool. Uh, he was he was part of that. Uh, yeah. Michael, our time is up, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and we look forward to uh, having you back, and wish you all the best in the future. Awesome, good seeing you, Dave. All right. Big all right. thank you. That's uh, Michael Etherington, and as I mentioned off the top of the show, he is both a relations consultant and storyteller, and uh, you can look for him online. You can find him. Uh, he's got his own website, Michael Etherington. Is it dot .com? Yep, dot .com. And you can find out about uh, hiring him. You can find out about his bio. You can find out about all the stuff that he's in, been involved with, and uh, look forward to uh, getting uh, his book uh, coming out uh, later this year. It's been a pleasure having him on the show, but... Uh, 
Please don't go away because we're going to be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this with more. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome my next guest to, to the show and also online, Christopher Ochter, and he is a Haida animator and illustrator and born and raised in Haida Gwaii, British Columbia. But he moved to Victoria in 1997 and uh, Vancouver 1988. He also uh, has, uh, has uh, uh, completed uh, courses at Sheridan College in animation. And I guess that leads into some of the work that he has been doing uh, uh, up lately. And, uh, of course, we're here to talk about a film uh, that he uh, actually was on the show a while back talking about. It's called Now is the Time, and it's about uh, a, a totem that was erected in in a community out west, and it was the 50th anniversary that uh, Christopher made this film, Now is the Time, on. Christopher, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy or, to be here. Or should I say welcome back to the show, because as I said, yeah. it was great to have you on last time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You better watch it. We might have to start paying you. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> well, listen, congratulations on the film. It's doing well. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, since the last time you were here, it was uh, around uh, TIFF time, I believe, and, and uh, you were getting some some uh, some reviews of, of the show and getting it shown there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I was very excited to be at TIFF. And, um, yeah, most recently as well, uh, it just came back from Sundance. So we've had mm-hmm. uh, a really exciting run with this film. It's been... Um, it's been really, I've been really happy to see how it's been received and, and people have been um, taking the story in and just being moved by it. And um, yeah, so it's, it's been a, a really great ride. Yeah. And um, as you say, I, one of the films selected for Sundance and it's great. To, I guess that's, that's really nice to have a film selected to play at the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah. I mean, um, I just looked at, I mean, just playing the odds, I guess it was, mm. uh, pretty amazing there's so many films that were um were were submitted and uh, they only picked 72 and they 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 told us that uh, there was like 10 over 10,000 films were submitted so wow um yeah so the so the beautiful thing is like the the, the story comes from such a small corner of our country and in such a small community and uh, yet um uh, yeah, it, uh, just the fact that it's resonating, and uh, because it's an important story uh, for our culture and and for our our art forms, and um, yeah, it was just a big moment for us. So I'm 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 so happy that that people can see can see that. You know, Christopher, when you, when you say that, uh, we should give people a little bit of a background on this story. And you're right about all of that stuff. But what's really when you say it resonates with people, what's really interesting about this this short film it's about 16 minutes long i believe yeah yeah and 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 what you've what you've been able to do is is tie some some really cool elements into it it's not very often i don't think that a a a filmmaker and a director gets to work with uh and talk with someone about an issue that happened uh you know what 50 years earlier and and has film footage from a time with a young guy in the film that you've got to pull from and it's fabulous film footage yeah it's amazing film footage it was uh yeah shot by the national film board in 1969 and it was shot on 35 millimeter film so um which the nfb then uh uh, re-scanned into 4k for me and uh 
yeah, the results are, uh, people come up to me after the film and they asked if I reshot, and said, did you reshoot this footage? And uh, yeah, and there's, and there's, you know, the clothing they're wearing, it's, it's what's in fashion today. So, so yeah, Except- you know, I, I was so fortunate with that. Cause then, and, and then I even went back further with Robert, uh, cause, uh, he was in another NFB film when he was 14 called Hide a Carver. So that's how I was able to get the footage of when he was 14 and carving the Argelite. And, um, and able to show, you know, this, he was just working with these, these works of art that he could sculpt in his hand. And then he had to, for this first pole of his totem poles, 40 foot pole, mm. he had to upscale that, you know, by a massive amount. So mm-hmm. it just, it kind of boggles how he was able to do it with his 14-year-old brother, Reg. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, so listen, Christopher, for people that don't know about this story, um, why don't you, you tell us, first of all, like, when, when were you aware of this? When were you aware of, was it the 50th anniversary of this that caught your attention? What, what prodded you to, to look further into the story and make a film about it? Yeah, well, it was, it was lucky for me that I had, I had just finished making a film with the National Film Board called The Mountain of Skana, which was a fully animated um, 10-minute film. So I was actually, I went into the office to talk about doing another one. And um, this, um, an elder in our community, a scholar, her name is Barbara Wilson. Mm. She was a big part of, of uh, the film crew, the National Film Board crew, being on Haida Gwaii. Uh, to be able to film Robert and Reg and the community of Old Mass at Haida Gwaii, um, raising this first totem pole in nearly a century in 1969. Mm. Um, but she didn't get to be a part of the editing process and making the decisions of what the story should be about after we filmed it or after they filmed it. And uh, she got pushed out. So she never got to see the film for like 49 years. And she was talking with, um, with Reg Davidson, one of the carvers of the pole. And they're like, well, you know, 50th anniversary is coming up. Maybe there'll be a feast and, you know, there'll be some gifts to give out. She thought, well, maybe we could give this film out that the NFB made mm-hmm. way back then. And uh, she asked, hey, can I, she asked uh, Michelle Van Busicum from uh, the Montreal Studios of the National Film Board head office, and can I see the film? So she showed she showed Barbara the film and Barbara was, she was mortified. She just, she, she, she hated the film. Mm. Um, she asked, can something be done? And uh, Michelle said, yeah, we could do a new edit. And, and then uh, she told my, the executive producer here in Vancouver, all the way over here, um, uh, you know, do you have someone in mind? And um, yeah, so they asked me if I'd be willing to look at the footage. And I was, this was, the first time I kind of known about this story and I grew up on Haida Gwaii. So I was like, why, why, it seems like such a big moment. Why don't, why as me growing up there, how come I didn't know about this? And mm. then, and then the footage just blew, blew my socks off too. Right. Cause it was just like, it was so interesting and fascinating to see when the community I grew up in, what it looked like 50 years ago and then <laughs> just see the people. So that, that was really the drawing. And I was like, yes, even though I hadn't done it, I hadn't, made a documentary film before mm. um i was still like yes i am up for the challenge you know and, and the, the big task for me was to really immerse myself to try to figure out okay what was it like at this time of our our history uh, this time uh and, and trying to figure out what happened to the totem poles you know there's uh, stories of forests of totem poles and then mm. And then there was none. Like, well, where did they all go? So, right. so, and seemingly to disappear so quickly, 
village is not having any any art of its any type of of First Nations Haida art in 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 our own village. So uh, when this is when Robert Davidson grew up, and uh, he told the story that he went door to door looking so he could try to you know learn their art form. And mm. He only found one bent wood box with where that was painted on the side. That's right. Out of the whole village, that all, that was all he could find. And and the more I found out, this yeah, it's truly it, it all from from the like early uh, or late like 1890s um, up to like the 1960s like there was really a kind of a purge of of our artwork and and the missionaries really you know get get rid of that it's it's no good uh, you, you go to hell if you yeah. if, if you have that that kind of stuff around so um and and the hiders were in survival mode because we had been decimated by the by the the smallpox and mm. tuberculosis epidemics um the residential schools it so the list goes on mm. but so everybody was in survival mode so they were just kind of wanting to survive mm-hmm. and um yeah so there was it all led up to the 1960s where it seemed like there was never going to be another kind of uh, like the, the the carvings and the artwork was going to be gone forever so there was this beautiful moment of it seeming to with this pole raising that it came out into the open again and this pole raising Carving the, the the totem pole, it triggers the dancing and the, the singing and the art and the potlatch, like all the different major components of our culture. It seemed to trigger, so that's and people could see, oh, we're not being arrested and we're not, you know, being <laughs> uh, ridiculed or or, or um, berated for for practicing it. And so that's when it kind of it it started happening again. It seemed uh, it was one of the big factors, anyway. It must have been very exciting for you to see not only the footage, but to hear the comments that were made uh, about the raising of the totem and, and how it brought the whole community together, both, you know, both clan, the, uh, the eagle and the raven, uh, and, and how, uh, you know, uh, Robert, <laughs> it's interesting, his comment about at the end, he says, you know, I, I wanted to try and teach the elders something, and of course it, it turned around and he was the one that ended up learning something out of the whole process, and it must have been quite wonderful for him to, uh, to see, and, and you, you get that sense from even you know, the interviews that you did with him when he, he gets choked mm-hmm. up at one point. He has to turn away from the camera because he's he's too emotional. Yeah, like you said, still after these 50 years when he thinks about it and, and retells it and I guess, uh, you know, brings himself back there. Yeah, it still, still kind of hits him hard. Um, because, yeah, there was, a, and I think it's when he's, you know, he's thinking about the elders and just all that they gave back in terms of, um, laying down this new foundation because I'm sure there was a uh, vast majority of the people that were there. It was a lot of first times for them in terms of uh, reconnecting with their their own culture again. Like the uh, whether it's the singing or the dancing or you know the the uh, being witness and being able to attend a potlatch or a feast mm. like that is um, um, so there's lots of people that uh, were reconnecting there and it was the elders that. Like as soon as Robert started carving the pole, the all the, the elders of of Old Masset, they all started gathering and having meetings and discussing, you know, how to put this all together just as it was done, as a, as if it would, you know, this was coming up like a uh, being done a century ago. So yeah. and that was them collecting their 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 thoughts of what they've been taught from their parents and their grandparents. Um, so yeah, the. It, it, 
boggles my mind of how they were able to piece that all together, but that just shows kind of that. Uh, I mean, we very much come from an oral tradition, so I, you know, that that was mm. that was still being done. Um, so they were able to do it that way. But just the pieces to be able to piece such a big event together like that, and that's it's it's it's, it's a marvel at where we were then, fifty years ago, compared to where we are now with our art form and 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 our culture with the weaving and the singing and stuff. There's lots that was lost, but. We 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 sure come a long way, I think. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to jump in here and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. My guest is Christopher Ochter. He is a Haida animator and illustrator. We're talking about his film, Now is the Time. It's uh, just come back from the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, he was in our studios uh, around the time of TIFF. Uh, talking to us about this film as well, but we wanted to catch up with him as uh, the film has gone on uh, and is certainly a compelling film that is capturing the attention uh, right around the world with these film festivals, which is wonderful to see because, you know, Chris, it's really interesting because it's not a long film, as we mentioned, 16 minutes long, and yet so much is rolled into the 16 minutes. And I guess what, what is really interesting on so many levels is not only do you have... The, the the man who helped raise this as the focal point, uh, Robertson Davidson, uh, as a you know that you're talking to him in in present day, but you've got this film footage as we mentioned of him as a young man, and as you mentioned uh, film footage of even when he was younger uh, from the National Film Board that you could uh, you could restore and bring into the present to tell the story uh, in in real time uh, with this this film footage. It's not recreation; it's the actual stuff, and it's so great mm-hmm. to see. But, you know, it, it must be really interesting also for the people of Haida Gwaii to be able to not only look back at this, but able to look back 50 years ago at their own community and, and relive that and see the footage of themselves as either young people or relatives. As you mentioned, the clothing and the cars, the old cars that are, you know, the 60s that are, that are driving around the streets and see what, the, uh, see what that looked like. And, and of course, it, it's, it's compelling for everyone that sees it just because it's such a, a great story. And, you know, not to mention there is that element of, of danger in that because when they're raising this, they decide to raise this totem uh, in the traditional yeah. way and not use a crane. And it's, you know, you're waiting to, you know, you're on pins and needles when you're watching this thing being raised because you're going, yeesh, it doesn't look safe how they're doing this. Yeah, yeah, and even like the the A frames they were using to mm. kind of prop prop it up a little <laughs> bit as it goes, and and when they finally do let those those A frames go, you know they're 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 forty or, or fifty foot long um, um, long timbers too, right? When mm. they do let it go, you see it in the films. One guy's got to like almost dive out of the way to, <laughs> to not be uh, clobbered by one of those. Eh? So, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was. Um, that sense of danger, yeah, mm. yeah. So, and, yeah, Robert says too. You know, I just, I just thought it was going to fall down every yeah. time they raised it up a bit. I just thought it was going to come toppling back down. Mm. Uh, Christopher, don't if you don't mind, I'd like you to clarify something for me because I remember hearing yeah. a while back that uh, you always refer to to totems as totems, not totem poles. Uh, no, I, we we call them totem poles. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I don't know where that came from, but I always remember that you shouldn't call them totem poles. You just call them totems. But oh. uh, yeah. Anyway, no, we 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 call them totem poles. Okay. 
Um, so, okay, well, that's that. good to know. <laughs> I, I just wanted to clarify because uh, that's what yeah. I remember hearing. Um, ah, okay. Now, the other thing, of course, that you managed to bring into this and, and is some animation. And not only animation, but I think is really cool is that, and I don't remember catching this the first time around, is uh, when Robert uh, and his brother are in, in the film and they're on camera and they, they have the, the, uh, the raven cla- clappers, clackers, whatever they might be that they use. And, the, you know, he, they're looking at the masks and things. And his brother, his brother puts one on, and then you see the animation in the eyes. And I was going, "Wow, that's so cool! How is that even? How is that even happening?" Now I know that you know the West Coast masks have animation in them through the eyes, and they open up, and there's different masks that do different things. But it was, it was yeah. quite interesting to see that because I thought, "Wow, it actually looks like it's moving with his eyes." I wonder how that's happening. But um, the masks are, are of course, uh, really cool to see as well. Yeah, 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 and those those specific like the the gossip mask that, mm-hmm. that, that Reg is wearing, yeah, that one has its own eye articulation built into it. But no, like the masks were really sophisticated. Like there was um, there's some masks that I seen as well that um, that the the mouth shapes can change, mm-hmm. and uh, they're really like yeah, like you said, like they're they're animated themselves. Like there's there's so much life into these, and that's really what I was trying to. One of the things I was trying to express with the animation mm. is that this this art form it, it just it's it's it just feels alive. Yeah. And there's uh, like there's a life to it, and um, and and really like that's how they're made as well. They're 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 made just like uh, almost like us, like their life cycle. Like they're they're made, they're raised, and then they're not supposed to be taken down. They're they're supposed to go back to the earth, like mm. um, like de- like deteriorate mm. and and just just like us, we, mm. we go back to the earth, deteriorate, and go back to the earth. So, yeah. so yeah, there's there's this there's this life, uh, um, and so the that's what I, one of one of one of the things I was trying to do was you know the artist and you know creating these 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 beautiful pieces of of, of work that are alive and and also I wanted to draw our our youth in so that they would take this story in because I, I you know it's an important story. Um, so I, I didn't want that to just be adults, you know, mm. telling them a story and kind mm. of going over their head pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so I added those el- animation elements in and, uh, but where it made sense, I didn't try to force it in right. and, and, and adults come up to me too and say, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, the animation. So I, I love the fact that, you know, at the outset, yes, I put it in for our younger audience, but um, the fact that um, adults can enjoy that that part as well is, is yeah, it's, yeah. it means it's working, I guess. Right. And yeah. I just wanted to say as well that, um, that, um, uh, that our, our listeners, they could watch the film on um, the New York Times OpDocs. Yes, becoming, that's right. Uh, it was picked up by the New York Times. So, yeah, anyone who, who seems like, or, you know, just, their interest is piqued, uh, please go check it out. Yeah, so in, in fact, uh, if you go to uh, nytimes.com, uh, and I guess you, they can just do a search there. It's too long of a name to, for me to, to, um, to, to list all, all of it. But I guess if they go to NY, nytimes.com and then do a search for, uh, for yeah, Now is the Time? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah the, the NY Times OpDocs, uh, mm. Now is the Time, and okay. it'll come up. Yeah. Um, and yes, so you can see it there. And uh, you know, as we were, as you were talking about the animation, and and what I, 
what I really liked. And I liked how you tied it in with the animation of the mask because when I saw it this time, I went, ah, I wonder if Christopher was was sort of working on that element of taking that animation from the mask Mm. and sort of extending it into the film by doing that, uh, the animation in the film itself. But uh, the other thing I thought, which I, which I thought was really interesting, and I didn't catch this the first time around either, was um, seeing uh, Robert in his in his studio, studio working, and that's when we first see that uh, that that uh, painting, uh, you know, on the wall. But the wall is an entire wall of of just firewood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and he takes a piece of wood and puts it into the into the uh, the wood stove, and then you see the whole room is is almost this whole room of, of firewood, and I guess of course it makes sense for him to have warmth, but it's such a cool room. Did you did you was that was that there that time, or did you place that there for this? I'm not trying to destroy anything for the film. Yeah, but. no, 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 you're not. It's actually. Uh, I'm actually really happy that you uh, mentioned the firewood because it's uh, it's one of those nuances of the film that I tried to place in because it comes right after the 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 burning of the totem poles, right? Mm. And, um, mm. So this idea of firewood, and mm. then you know you come in right after, and Robert's right. taking the firewood from his his, his carving shed. So yeah. you're actually the first person to ever mention that. Hey. So I'm really happy about that. Thank you. <laughs> glad I could um, glad I could help. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, they, no, that was there, and that, see, that was one of those things that, that you know, sometimes just things happen for a reason, and and they and they just make sense. And if um, like, because when I first went to his studio to visit him, it was in the it was in the springtime, so uh, there was no need for um, for the firewood, so that wasn't there. That mm. that wall of firewood wasn't mm. there. So when I was picturing and putting together, you know, what I would like for the scene I, like i just you know drew some concepts of of robert at his desk and um and in my concept this wasn't there right mm-hmm. so when we came to shoot i was like oh you know there's that that wall of firewood it's you know it's it's right in where i wanted his you know for him to be carving and mm-hmm. you know i even asked you do you think we could uh, like move it and he's like oh, wow it's a lot of work and stuff. <laughs> um, so I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, let's just, you know, let's leave it. Mm. Um, and it ended up being like the most perfect thing. So yeah. yeah so it's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's how he, uh, he sets up his carving studio, gets it ready for the winter. Yeah, that's great. Um, he is, is he brings in that firewood. Yeah. And then so we were able to put in the, yeah, the, the, the beautiful print that he did, um, yeah, be able to mount it right there on the firewood. The other thing I have to ask you about, Chris, is uh, at the at the end of the film, after the uh, the totem is raised and they're having their celebration, and they're in the hall, and uh, you know they're handing out the uh, I guess the print uh, that everyone got in the community. But you see all the celebrations going on, and you see the the elder people up on stage dancing, and there's such joy that comes across. In in all of them, it really looked like this was something really needed in the community. That it really did it really did the community well to have this done. Yeah, I, I mean, just they make me smile. So every time I was watching the footage when we were when I was in the editing studio with um, Sarah Hadar, my editor, she um, it was just seeing yeah, like those the the pride and the and and you know looking seeing their feet and stuff like they they these feet have been through miles right like and they mm. they 
they're they're dancing so youngly <laughs> like they it's um and you know and there's and some of them are like really serious and it's almost like a, like it's almost like feels like a dance off almost it's just beautiful <laughs> yeah. just beautiful yeah um so th- yeah that was amazing to see and then and even um um april uh it was that that's the april churchill um that's the the ballerina in mm. in in the film like she's 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 an elder in our community now mm. um a very talented weaver and artist but um you know then she and actually she taught robert a lot of dances and mm. um um but that was you know that was she had learned ball, ballet and and her mom wanted her to be up there dancing so she actually specifically choreographed that mm. piece and she called it like a like a, a raven dance mm. and 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 I thought that was beautiful too is you know giving giving what you could for for this for the, for this moment right mm-hmm. even though it wasn't when you wouldn't say it was traditional but mm. she was giving what she could and sure. um and yeah and then that then and the, the elders like they were they were putting it on display and, and teaching everybody else this is how you do it. Because nowadays in the potlatch, it's not going to be our elders dancing. It's it's the young troops mm. and uh, dancing troops. Like you, mm. You're you not going to see that again. Right. That was pretty special. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That is Christopher Ochter. He is a Haida animator and illustrator and director of Now Is The Time. And uh, as we just mentioned, it was at TIFF. It just came back from Sundance Film Festival. And you can catch that online, as, uh, as Chris mentioned, if you go to the NY Times opdoc and uh, just uh, type in Now is the Time, you can find that and view it online. It's about 16 minutes long. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time on Moment of Truth. Until then, see you then. I also want to say Nyawa Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa Miigwech, and thanks for listening.